We turn in God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going back to our series on Mark that we left off with several months ago now, and we will pick it up now at chapter 14 and then continue through the rest uh, of the book. This morning, though, we will consider verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 14 under the theme of killing Jesus. Mark 14, 1 through 11. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again pray and ask for God's blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee once again as we open your word. And we hear the story of your son and the dying on the cross and saving us from our sins. Lord, we pray that thou be with each and every one of us and that we may apply this to our lives. Lord, we pray that thou be with Pastor Bob and give him the words to say. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So we'll consider it under the two paragraphs that are given to us here. One, the plot, which we will also include the section about Judas. And secondly, the preparation. So you have the plot and the preparation. The title of the message is quite alarming in some respects, isn't it? Killing Jesus. It's an unsettling thing to hear. Perhaps when you got that email of the bulletin or maybe when you sat down this morning and looked at the title, your mind immediately went to uh, the book that has been written by that title as well. By, uh, I think it's Bill O'Rourke is the title of it, uh, the author of it, I should say, who has written a series 
of those books, getting deep into the plots that are behind it. Well, such is the case here as well. There is indeed a plot, a biblical plot. We're told that. We're told that in verses 1 through 2 and then 10 and 11, that there is a plot to actually kill Jesus. What an alarming thing to think about. There were people in this world who are not looking to Jesus and understanding the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice for their sin, but who are actively engaged in seeking to kill the Son of God, to kill Jesus of Nazareth. We are told by Mark here of the timing. We are told that this is just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Some of the two of the most holy times for a Jewish person. One of the three Jewish festivals at which all Jewish men were required to make an attempt at least to be at. This is a time of that should have been a time of introspection, a time of coming to the Lord, a time of looking to the Lord and thanking the Lord for that Passover lamb that had been supplied to them back in Egypt, out of which they were able to escape the bondage of Pharaoh. A time of gratitude, a time of thanksgiving, but now just two days before that celebration, there are men who are actively plotting to kill Jesus. Matthew gives us the same date of this. Luke reports that the Passover was drawing near. Certainly not a contradiction to, to two days beforehand. The conspirators involved, as Mark names them, are the chief priests. Not all the priests. Okay? Don't, you, you have to understand that. It's not all the priests. It's the chief priests. Those who are in charge, right? Uh, the Annas, the Caiaphas, those who are in the upper echelons, they're the ones who are involved, as well as the scribes, the teachers of the law. Matthew mentions that the elders of the people of the, are involved as well. Uh, commentators aren't quite sure if if that is, the, when you put the chief priest and scribes together, do you have the elders of the people? Or is Matthew saying there were some others who were involved from a different perspective? And certainly, as we learn at the end of this, Judas also. It's almost like there's brackets here, isn't there? It's almost like the way that, that Mark is retelling us this event. We bracket it with some betrayers, some plotters at the beginning, we're going to have this preparation, this anointing in the middle, and what follows on the other side is some more plotting, some more betrayal. But there is a problem. These men have a concern. They tell us, for example, in their own words, verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
See, they're not concerned in their spirituality that this is just the wrong time to do something. Look, this is a holy feast. This is a sacrifice of the Passover lamb. We, we shouldn't be plotting during this time. That's not even their reasoning. Their reasoning is there are so many people. Our actions could well turn back on us. For you see, they understand that there are many people who are the followers of Jesus who have come to Jerusalem. Not because they're followers of Jesus, but because of the feast and festival. They probably have in mind and are thinking about that entry on Palm Sunday. There were a lot of people lining the streets. There were a lot of people singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're thinking, well, that's a large segment of people. Plus, there's going to be a large segment of pilgrims coming down from Galilee to Jerusalem. Those who, who might have an even more invested reason of following Jesus. They're concerned about the crowd. They're concerned about those people. So they say we need to do this with stealth. <laughs> with stealth, verse 1. To arrest him with stealth. We need to go about this without detection. We need some way to do this quickly. We need some way to surprise. We need to do some way unto cover. We, we've got to be working now with the hopes that somehow at the end of this time of feast, which is actually eight days, because it begins with Passover, then you have seven days of unleavened bread. Sometime after that will be our opportunity. But let's work quietly. Remember, we produced a, a number of years ago a bomber here in the United States that was called the Stealth Bomber. It was to fly under detection. The idea was that it would be under radar, that because of its design, because of its speed, that a, a foreign enemy would not be able to detect it. That's what they're trying to do. They don't want to be open. They don't want to be public. This has all got to be on the hush-hush. How are we going to do that? How is that going to happen? Well, we certainly can't do it during the time of the feast. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute. They do it during the time of the feast. Yes. Because God's sovereignty overrules even their objections. God's going to give them the opportunity. God's going to place within their hands an opportunity they just can't turn down. What's the opportunity? One of Jesus' own disciples is going to come to them. And he's going to say to them, I'm going I'm to be, I, I want to work with you cooperatively. Oh, they wanted to do it by stealth, and oh, now it's there. Now it's there. Now we have this opportunity. Let's take it. What if Judas changes his mind? What if Judas doesn't want to follow through with this? We've got to hit while the, while the time is right. So even though. They're, they have an objection, not during the feast. The opportunity that is going to come their way through the hand 
and betrayal of Judas is such a carrot at the end of the stick, they can't turn away from it. They've got to launch at it. They've got to carry it forth. So great is this opportunity that even their fears and concerns dissipate. They're going to have to figure out a way to get the crowd on their side as well. But that's coming chapter. But what is it that Mark reports here in the middle? Well, he tells us about this preparation, this anointing. We learn that the place of this is in Bethany. That should be a familiar term or a familiar town to you. It's the town of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's their hometown. There is a gathering there. That's what Mark is reporting. It's a gathering at the home of a man who is called Simon the leper. Now, obviously, he is not a leper at this time, or else people could not be in his home by Jewish law. So we have to conclude from that that this Simon was a leper, most likely healed by Jesus. There is a large feast being held in honor of Jesus, Out of gratitude and thanksgiving, it could be because of Simon being cured. Or it might be in honor of Jesus because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Interesting that we are told, not here, but in John, when this took place. Keep your finger here. Go with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. So the question is, when did this happen? Now in Mark, as we would read through it, we would say, well, there is this plot, and then Jesus is anointed. Two days before the Passover. But John tells us, no, not this event. John chapter 12. Six days. Before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped his hair. Oh, this is the same event. But John includes for us the fact that this was actually six days before. Now follow what's happening. Here in Jerusalem, two days before the Passover, the chief priests, teachers of the law, are meeting together trying to figure out a way how Can we arrest Jesus? How can we kill Jesus? But we've got this feast thing going on. Four days before that, here we are in Bethany. And through the events that take place at this dinner, the heart of Judas Iscariot is going to be moved to become the betrayer. Fitting in, you see, with these men over here 
who are plotting. And he appears, as it were, to them out of nowhere. (laughs) It's not out of nowhere, is it? God, before the foundations of the world, had determined the exact day and moment of the death of his son. And even men's cautious concerns are not going to change God's sovereign plan. So we know the place and kind of the occasion. The person, Mark just identifies as a woman. John identifies to us as Martha. Of course, we could have figured that out from the Mark passage as well. Okay, we, we have people mentioned. We have the situation mentioned. Lazarus is there. Martha is there. Mary emerges as the one who comes forward. And what is her act? Verse 3, she takes an alabaster flask, which simply means a white, alabaster is white, a white flask with some pure emphasis there because often the custom was to to kind of mix in other ingredients and and, and to, to, to sort of dilute the nard. Here, we are told, no, the nard was pure. It's 100% nard. Not mixed out back with some other stuff. And it's nard. Now, you're probably wondering, what is nard? Well, your footnotes, some of you with a study Bible and might tell you this, that it's a dried root. You say, well, what's the big deal? It's dried root from the Himalayas. Your antennas just go up? Where are we? We're in Bethany. We're in Israel. Where did they get this stuff from? From the Himalaya mountains. Pure nard. The Himalayas are the, is that mountain range for geographically challenged folks between India and China. already you probably think that must have been expensive it's very expensive but think of the rarity of this stuff then making its way from the Himalaya mountains all the way to this little town in Bethany to the hands of Mary a flask worth 12 ounces approximately so they judge Worth 300 denarii. How do I know that? That's the the John passage. John adds that to us. 300 denarii. The average worker made a denarii a day. This is a year's salary. Just think of that. A year's salary. Take your, this is a good time of year to do this, right? Okay, you're all busy working on your income taxes, getting the papers all together, right? You probably, most of you received that W-2 form, okay? And on that W-2 form was those gross wages, right? And you're probably thinking, where did all that go? 
Where did all that gross income go? Well, you look at the taxes and Medicaid, Medicare, you look at Social Security, and you go, well, okay, that took care. Where did the rest of that go? Take the top number. Take the top number, the gross. And imagine spending that on a jar of perfume. Not to be used as little dab, little dab. Might last you several years, maybe the rest of your lifetime. You take that entire flat, the entire amount, and you come up to Jesus and you break it over his head. And there's that stuff flowing down all the way to his feet. Some of the drops fall to his feet. We're told in the other passages, she takes her hair. She wipes his feet so that his entire feet are covered. The room in an instant becomes filled with smell, with a fragrance. Your whole gross Income for a year. This is her act. This is what she does. Objections immediately. Some in hearts, some become indignant, meaning they become angry. Some of those thoughts, or if they were verbally expressed, come out. And they come out from the mouth of Judas Iscariot. What a waste. What a waste. Why so much? Why so much extravagance? Man's just a teacher. He's just a rabbi. Judas' objection is that this could have been used for the poor. Oh, not out of a sincere heart, because John tells us he did so because he was the guy who carried the money bank. And he periodically stole out of the money bank. We need 50 more million dollars for this cause. Yeah. So I can get my hand in and I can reach in and take what I need. We need more money for this. So I can reach in okay, and take out what is needed. Right? I mean, we all know the game that's played, right? We hear it over and over and over again. Regardless of the politician, regardless of whether they're a red state, blue state, regardless if they're Democrat or Republican, the game gets played. Fund my cause because that pact supports me. I get money in my wallet. How do people who earn really a relatively small salary end up being worth $85 million? Fund my project. 
Well, this is Judas. He's not concerned about the fact that the oil is on his head. His concern is it's not in the money bag where he can have part of it. And the words of Jesus now hit him right in the head, right between the eyes. He's the one thinking it. He's the one stating it. So let's deal with it. But there's other voices. He's not alone. Some, because it says some, not only. Some, right? Who said to themselves indignantly. So there's a murmuring. And Jesus understands the murmuring. He detects the murmuring. He's aware of the murmuring. Stop it. Leave her alone. You'll have your opportunities for the poor. These words of Jesus are kind of startling, aren't they? These are not what we might think might come out of the mouth of Jesus. We might think Jesus would have said, you know, you're right. Boy, that should have all been given to the poor. Boy, there's a lot of needy causes. I don't know why such extravagance for me. But he doesn't. He accepts the extravagance. He, ex he accepts the act of gratitude. He accepts the act of thanksgiving. You'll have the poor. There's a time for the poor. There's a place for the poor. And you're giving to them. But that is not now. I'm here now, physically, present. See, one could have gone back and asked the question, why are you going to a great banquet, Jesus? Think of all the food that could have gone to poor people rather than that extravagance of the banquet itself. Of course, then we could have gone back right to the whole building of the tabernacle. Why does God deserve gold? Shouldn't that be dispersed? Why did the temple have to be overlaid with gold? Shouldn't that have gone somewhere else? There is a place for the extravagance of giving to God. Jesus is not outruling. The fact that, no, I deserve it all, never give anything to the poor, that's a wrong attitude as well. But he is also saying there is a time and a place. If all that money had gone into the bag, how much of it would have reached the hands of the poor with Mr. Judas sticking his hand in? How often we're played upon by our emotions. Oh, give to this cause, give to this cause. And the question is, how much actually reaches the people to whom we intend to give? Who's taking the cut off the top? Who's living a pretty good life off that which we give for these people? 
Jesus is simply saying, understand. Be cautious. But don't neglect the responsibility you have to give. But when you give, give it to those who are in need. But he is physically present now. And you see, Jesus, who knows what's happening, Jesus, who knows what's going to take place, he knows where these next days bring him. He knows he's going to die on a cross. He knows it's going to be late. He knows they're going to take him down, wrap him in a linen cloth. He knows they're going to put him in a tomb. He knows they're going to put in the amount of spices they can. But he has not been properly anointed. But Jesus knows that. And Jesus understands that the act of Mary here is the act of preparation for his burial. He is not shying away from this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying this act of Mary prepares me to die. That's why Jesus connects this to wherever the gospel is preached. Wherever the good news is preached. What's the good news? That Jesus came into this world. That he suffered. That he died upon a cross. And that he rose again from the dead on the third day. That he has ascended into heaven. And that he lives and rules and reigns. And that through faith in Jesus Christ... We too, who are dead in our trespasses in sin, can indeed be alive in Christ. This is the good news. And wherever that good news is preached, this woman's act, Mary's act, of preparing him for his burial, is going to be proclaimed as well. What does that mean? It means that Jesus knew none of what is going to come in the rest of these chapters is a surprise. His death is not an accident. His death is not stealth. He knows. The very one they're plotting against is the one who knows the plot. He's known the plot since before creation. He knows the heart of Judas, and he picked him as a disciple anyway. Why? Because there is a plan and a purpose that is about to be enacted. And this is part of the plan. And Jesus knows. What motivates someone in such a way? Love. me this is what we're seeing here the love of Jesus that he takes the act of anointing of preparation for burial as a reminder to you and I all of his suffering all of his pain his death his rejection by the father it's out of love for you. 
never say that enough. We can never tell that good news enough. We can never look past the deep, deep love of Jesus. Judas, so angry by the love of Jesus that he goes out to betray him. Did Jesus know that was going to be the result? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he knows that there are men who are hesitating with their plan. My love. My love. Causes men to come and embrace me. As their Lord, as their Savior. But his love also turns people away. They're angered by his love. They're angered by mercy. They're angered by grace. They want to do it themselves. They're selfish. They're only seeking themselves. And Jesus' love is not self-seeking. Jesus' love is an emptying. And the love of Jesus angers. It repulses them. but not for you and I. For you and I, the love of Jesus compels us to live, to testify of his goodness, of his grace. And God's people say, Amen.